Well, good evening, everybody. Y'all doing okay? Y'all survived spring break? Those of you who are just saying, what is spring break? It's just another day. I didn't have any time off of work. We're so glad to see you. Hey, um, I want to say before we uh, totally wrap up the singing portion that as we approach Easter, next week we have Palm Sunday, which looks ahead to when Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem and they hailed him as king. But then we look ahead the following week to Good Friday, where this king didn't get enthroned on some gorgeous and immaculate temple. He got enthroned on a cross. And what the world has been trying to reconcile and understand the last 2,000 years is what it looks like for God's king to be crucified and enthroned on a cross. And when we sing this song, Man of Sorrows, and at the rugged cross where God's love is poured out over me, I want you to know that as we look ahead to Good Friday, when we see the ugliness of human sin, it is matched overwhelmingly, not just equally, it is matched by the love of God. If you want to say, what does God look like? What is God's greatest hit? It is at the cross of Calvary. It's not some ritualistic sacrifice from a monster God who needed blood. It was God saying, this is how much I love you. This is what John says in 1 John 4. He could say anything he wanted to about the God who is love. And he says, this is God. God is love. He doesn't say God is wrath. He doesn't say God is holy, though God is holy. He doesn't say God is powerful. God is love. And he says, and by the way, this is how we know it, that he gave his one and only son as an atoning sacrifice for us. So as we approach the Good Friday story, make no mistake about it, the headline of the story is, this is the blazing center of a relentless love of God. When human ugliness and sin pooled together and all the evil in the world pooled together, To crucify and kill God, he turned the other cheek and said, Father, forgive them. Do not be mistaken. The cross is the center point of a God who loves us more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's a free sermon. I want to pray and then I want to talk about Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we are so grateful for this day. We are so grateful that you've given us each week reasons to sing together. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a people to pray with and to learn with and to seek out the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus Christ, your King, who came to be enthroned on a cross, who came to dismantle a world of violence and vengeance by laying down his life and forgiving May we never lose sight of the blazing center of your love for us and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, our King. May we pause there in trembling and in awe of the love that was poured out that we just sang about. May we never lose sight that we are reconciled to you, our loving Father, whose arms are open wider than we could imagine, and they've got nail-scarred hands, welcoming the prodigal son as well as the older brother who thinks he doesn't need you. You love us and you welcome us. And we see it because of the cross and the empty tomb. So we ask that you would guide us on this journey and even this evening 
as we look to you to find our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as Pastor Bud said, today is St. Patrick's Day. And it's also a day that we're marking a celebratory anniversary. It wasn't the exact day, but it was the third week of March last year that we launched our neighborhood clothes closet. And we can clap for that. Because we were hoping that everybody who was in partnership and membership in this church a year ago this time would, by this point today, have served in our closed closet. And we are like crazily at the top. So I want to say thank you to everybody who has served. Like, I mean, seriously, like 99% of people. I mean, it's incredible. Because when we started this ministry, a lot of churches and other ministries that we were looking at said, yeah, good luck because clothes just multiply like rabbits and good luck having people to do it. And we said, well, we got this crazy idea that our whole church is going to do it. Not just a brave few people, but everybody's going to go through there. And the reason being is because this is one way that we can be present to the people in our neighborhood each and every week. And so I want to tell you that we've had over a hundred units, a hundred families, which translates to hundreds of people who have received clothes in Jesus' name. They've been prayed with in Jesus' name. And I want to also make a special thank you to Miss Toby Brooks. Y'all give Toby a hand. Because Toby, a deacon in this church, who is the servant leader in this church as a deacon, took this task upon her of like helping us get through the process of going through these people. And last night we had a long leader meeting, and she said she's also aggregated all the prayer requests that we've saved through these people. And she marveled at how we went back, and this person who prayed for this arm or this sickness or this cancer or this, we see a month later how God is at work in that. We see people who've been in difficult relationships come back, and they're happier on a Saturday when we see them at the closed closet because that destructive relationship is ended and we've just in some small glimpse in the lowest hanging fruit kind of way said every third Saturday let's show up let's show up and let's declare in prayer and with our lives and demonstrate through the meeting of tangible needs the kingdom of God so I want to say thank you neighborhood church for a beautiful year at this closed closet and if it's all right with you I say let's do them a few more years Lord willing that sound good all right Praise God for that. We thank you for your service. We thank you for the rock that's given us that space. Well, if you would turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, it's going to be on the screen, but I'd love for you to look at a phone or a Bible so you can kind of orient as to where we are in the middle of Jesus' last address. Bible people call it the farewell discourse. Jesus' last address, his farewell discourse to his disciples before he heads to the cross. We're going to be in John 14. As you make your way there, I'm going to go out on a limb here and maybe lose half of you. But I'm going to ask who in here by show of hands has seen the Lord of the Rings? Okay? Proud? You're proud? My wife is with the kiddos tonight. She, even though she's married to me, a person who went every single day they came out, the first one, the second one, the third one, day one, First showing, I was there, IMAX 3D, like I didn't quite dress up, but I'm like major Lord of the Rings fanboy. My wife has only endured the Fellowship of the Ring, and we're still married. She's never seen the second two, but I just got to tell you, it's not some people's 
piece of cake. So not everybody raised their hand. So let me just bring you up to speed here. Here is the story of like 12 hours from the extended cut and hundreds of pages from the books. You ready? Two little guys need to drop one ring into a volcano. That's it. Period. Done. Hundreds of pages, lots of orcs and dark lords and wizards and all this to get one ring in one volcano. That's it. But what's funny is, if you read the books, if you watch the movies, it's this long, and I mean long, journey. And at each step, it goes like this. They come up to a huge mountain. They come up to a dark forest. They come up to a roving army of bad guys. They come up to a creepy swamp. They come up to an impassable cave. They come up to huge spiders. And seriously, you just look at the characters, turn and say, it's the only way. Trust me. That's it. That's why it's hundreds of pages. Because at each point, they come to some impasse or obstacle, and they're like, well, we can't go around it. We got to go through it. It's the only way. Trust me. Every adventure movie ever boils down to this. Well, we've got this asteroid belt before we get into hyperspace. It's the only way. Trust me, I got this. Indiana Jones, it's the only way through the booby-trapped ancient ruined temple. It's the only way. Trust me. And he whips and he goes. This is what every movie ever basically is about. So when John is telling his story, he's got these 12 disciples who are along for the ride, and Jesus has said, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be killed, and they say, what? And Jesus basically tells them, it's the only way, what? Trust me. And you need to understand Where we are in John's story, chapter 14, I just told you, was his farewell discourse. In mere hours, Jesus will be leaving them. And we're going to see three times, at least, in our passage we're about to read, where the disciples say, can we really trust him? Because we are just like them. When we face some unknown, uncertain, horrifying future, we look around and we ask the question, is there any other way? Or we ask, where do we go now? There's some decision, there's some loss, there's some need that you have in your life right now. There's some regret that you have that you just can't shake. There is something standing in front of you that is dark and scary, and you are looking around saying, is there any other way? Where do I go from here? And Jesus is sitting at the table. He's washed his disciples' feet. He's telling them, To love one another. And I'm going away. But the Spirit will come and help you and comfort you. But you know what they're doing? They're looking to their neighbor on the left and the right. And tears are welling up. And the blood pressure is rising. Because they are saying, I think he's serious. And you have to understand that these are real life people. Who saw a real life man from Nazareth called Jesus. 
who had in real life, everyday life, eaten with them, taught them, showed them what God's way looked like. And they were trusting him as their king. And he said, I'm a king who's going to die and be enthroned, not on a palatial temple, but on a cross. And they're starting to look around and say, are we serious? Is there any other way? Where do we go from here? And then Jesus looks to them and he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Trust me. Look what he says in John 14, verses 1 to 10. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas says what we're all thinking at this point. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Then Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. We're going to explore the ways in which Jesus is the way and the truth and the life tonight for us who are staring down that big, ugly obstacle. In what ways is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life for us tonight? But first, we're going to begin by saying the very first thing he says is, trust me. Do you all see that in verse 1? He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's us and with the disciples looking around at the scary mountain or the scary cave or, hey, the big decision or the horrible diagnosis or the uncertainty of what lies ahead. And he says, don't lose it. The literal translation is like, don't let your hearts be shaken. And here's the trick. I always say in like premarital counseling or even in my own life and relationship, I've had to learn not to say, hey, don't be mad, or don't be sad, right? Because you can't tell somebody how to feel. You with me? Like relationships 101, don't tell your friend or family member or partner, hey, don't be mad at what I just did that was horrible to you. We're like, well, dude, I can't help it. I'm so mad right now. What you can control, I think to some degree, 
is avoiding the spiraling out. So Jesus looks to his disciples, and I believe he sees the fear and anxiety, and he says, no, 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 this is where in everyday life what it looks like to trust God, okay? Right here in this moment is the training ground for you to listen to what I said way back on the Sermon on the Mount where I said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. Instead, trust God who gives us what we need. Right now, in everyday life, is the training ground for you to learn how to live the way of Jesus that he taught and showed us. And so what he's saying is, don't let your hearts be shaken. If you are like me, I let myself get shaken. I let myself this week, after a wonderful week of running around with like 40 kids from the rock, singing and talking about Jesus and playing soccer and getting my butt kicked... After every day I come home and I just want to like collapse. And yes, I just said butt kicked in a sermon. Just deal with it. I started to let the stress of all the other stuff begin to kind of take control and get shaken. And the first of three moments I feel like we see where the disciples get real, real, even hours before Jesus goes, the first one is like they give us permission to be human and freak out. They give us permission to ask the hard questions that we're going to see later. But they give us permission to kind of freak out. But I'll tell you, when I was driving down First Street this week, I saw a church sign. And I I love church signs. Because most of them are just crazy and baloney and hilarious. But this one was like, boom. It was like a sign, like we're talking about in this series, pointing me to life in Jesus because I'm like hustling and I'm doing this and I'm running here and I saw this sign that says, what if we prayed as much as we worried? And I was like, boom, whoops. And I imagined, what if I had two buckets and I had a whole sack of marbles and one bucket was for every time I let fear and stress and anxiety shake me and spiral out. And I drop the marble in that bucket. Bucket number two is over here, and I can drop a marble in every time I cast my anxieties on him, which is what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord because what? He cares for you. Which bucket would be heavier in my life? This is the question I'm living with in my everyday life this week, and I don't even have the scariness of feeling like I'm abandoned by my king and my friend, like these disciples felt. Because here's the truth. You cannot avoid worry, but you can give it away. You cannot avoid worry. You cannot avoid fear. You cannot avoid anxiety. You cannot avoid these things that are part of the human condition of experiencing when life gets too much. But you can give it away to him. Because when you give it away to him, like a muscle, it begins to train and develop this idea that like, oh yeah, okay, you're right. I'm remembering now I can trust you. And I can hope that things will get through and be better. And so what we see here, with Jesus says, believe in God and believe also in me, what he's saying is, trust me, it will be okay, because Jesus is looking ahead to a Sunday when all they feel is Friday. You with me? 
So what Jesus is basically saying and showing us in this moment is that trust and hope are the antidote to fear and worry. When fear and worry are plaguing us and overtaking us, what we need to get a steady dose of is trust in him and hope that things will be okay. And how we do this and develop this is we remember God's power and presence from the past and the ways in which he's met with us before to inform our present and our future. We remember that he's been good before so we can trust him to be good again. So that's where he starts this whole thing off before we get to this I am statement. Then he says, don't worry, I've told you about my father's house and that there's room for everybody. He said, in my father's house, what? There's many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you something different. But he says, I'm going to what? Prepare a place for us. And then he says, I'm going to come back so that his followers, his disciples, his friends can be with Jesus where he is. Now, Quick thought experiment. How many of us at some point, or maybe still do, hear something like that and think something like this? Okay, Father's house, many rooms, boom, I got a mansion in the sky where I can fly up with my harp and there's a suite with my name on it that Jesus has immaculately appointed and it's got one of those sweet showers that's like got 18 heads and it's got a bench and it's got like all the, my favorite music, the ambient music that I like that nobody else in my family likes, and it's always playing. And then when I get out here, it's this other music that I like, and it's just finally appointed. Jesus has prepared it, and it's a mansion in the sky with streets of gold. Glory, hallelujah. What's funny is that is not what Jesus has in mind here. It is what's become in our mind because in the King James Version, which is a version from the 1700s, they use the word here for dwelling. They use their word for dwelling in the English 1700s, and they said, in my father's house are many mansions. So you can see how over 300 years, dude, I want a mansion, and they begin to fill in the blanks of this kind of heaven where we leave our bodies in the ground, and we go and float up, and we're just kicking it in Jesus' country club. But what Jesus intends here, what Jesus wants his disciples to understand is that when I come back, so think about the end of the age, the end of time, when Jesus comes back to renew all things and make all things new, the Father's house is not going to be this country club. He's going to renew heaven and renew this earth. Everybody say new heavens and new earth. New heavens and new earth. I hope you understand that God is not going to trash this earth and throw it away so that we can live as spirits in some country club in the sky. What is the end game at the end of Revelation, what the New Testament consistently points to, is that God will take this earth and renew it and make it new. And when Jesus comes back, we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to be embodied because Jesus rose out of the grave, what we're going to talk about in two weeks, not as some angel, but as a renewed first fruit of the first kind of human being that we will, and that is he's going to renew our body. He's going to renew this earth. He's not going to waste anything. 
And we've got such a messed up understanding when we think we're going to go and be like, like angels. As if Jesus being embodied and then raised means nothing. No, the dwelling to which he's pointing is the new heavens and the new earth. And God will be at its center. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will expunge evil and sadness and death. And we will be filled with life the way God always intended. That's the end game. That's the end game. I do believe that when we die today, we go and we're at rest with the Father. Scripture gives us a couple hints, not as many as we want to think. But the end game is that Jesus will return and renew all things. He will make all things new. And so when we're talking in this way and Jesus begins to say, hey, you know the way to get there. Thomas says what we're all thinking at some point in our life. And he says, um, excuse me, wait a minute. We definitely don't know the place you're talking about, the Father's house, or the way to get there. I've talked a few times in this church that I'm young, but I'm still old enough to remember uh, not having Google Maps And I had this great sense of anxiety when I'd roll out in my 88 Jeep Wrangler, hoping I wouldn't miss the turn so that I would be late or miss this or that. I had this anxiety with me that I am going to miss the way to a destination to which I've never been. You with me? Religion is founded on the shaky underpinnings and foundation of making sure you take every right turn and say all the right words so that you end up in that mansion in the sky. Let me tell you that that is so palpably different from what Jesus is pointing to. This anxiety that faces Thomas, this anxiety I want you to understand that is facing your friends and neighbors when they go to funerals and wonder what's on the other side. The anxiety facing those who are giving one thought to life after death. If they allow themselves to feel it for a minute, they feel the tinge and anxiety of saying, how do I get there if in fact there is a there? You with me? I want to tell you It's not a religious checklist. It's not a magic prayer. It's not because you walked an aisle. In our leader meeting last night, we were talking about this anxiety we used to feel as kids. Like, well, I I believed, but was that just in my head? Or was it really just in my, uh, you know, like, was it really in my heart? One of our leaders talked about back in the day, like, that they looked around and didn't find their friends. And, oh, my gosh, did Jesus, like, take everybody in a rapture and I'm not, I'm, like, left behind? Like this anxiety for these people, because if that's what it is, a magic prayer or doing it right. And by the way, one of our leaders said, what do you mean walk an aisle? I was like, bro, you didn't even grow up in these kind of churches. You ain't never walked an aisle. We got to get this man to walk an aisle right now. Y'all clear out. I'm going to get this boy saved in my living room right now. (laughs) But whether or not he had walked an aisle, Aaron Sarkis. We all can point to moments in our life where we feel the anxiety of doing it right. But I'm telling you, it's not a religious checklist. It's not a magic prayer. It's not a philosophy because Jesus is a teacher. It's not a ceremony, ritual, or membership. Let me tell you what he says to Thomas. I am the way. 
The way is a person to follow. The truth is a person to trust. The life is a person to know. When he talks about no one gets to the Father but through me, he ain't just talking about the mansions. He's talking about the ultimate new life, new creation available to you right now and right then in the hereafter. And it's in the ultimate reality and the loving embrace of the Father who created you and has you in his hands. He's been longing for you. He's been patient for you to come to him. And the way to get there is to follow Jesus. It's not the magic prayer and doing this or that or because you were baptized. Those are all ancillary. Those are all add-ons and a part of do you trust that Jesus will get you to the end? Do you trust that when all is said and done and you're breathing and nearing your last, do you believe that God loves you because he sent Jesus to bring you home? That's what it means. I love this quote from Brennan Manning, who is telling this as an anecdote to a musician called Rich Phillips. And he says that I'm coming, becoming more and more convinced that God will ask us one question and one question alone when we die and meet him face to face. Do you believe that I loved you? I do not believe he's going to grab some weights and put our good deeds and our bad deeds. He's going to say, broad was the way of bringing hell on earth and getting lost in your way and turning your heart outward and, and turning it back away from people who need you. Narrow is the way of the people who've loved God and neighbor and followed Jesus the way home. Do you believe that God loves you? Because he says, when you've seen me and know me, then you know the Father. Philip later gives us a third real talk. The first was like, they're worried. The second was Thomas saying, uh, dude, we don't know the place or the way. The third was when Philip said, just show us the Father and we'll be good, man. And what a question to ask like the night before the papers do, Right? This man has walked with Jesus for three years, and you know what? It gives us permission to still wonder and doubt along the path of following this way in truth and life. Because I believe that in, in this series that we've been looking at, these radical statements that Jesus is making, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of the world, I am the bread, it's all taking place, listen, it's all taking place around this one dispute over, yeah, but can we trust him? Yeah, yeah, but is Jesus really who he says he is? Yeah, but look, is he really from the Father? Yeah, but is he really what God is like? Because I know what God is like. Is he really the way, the truth, and the life? Will he really get us to the end? I believe what Jesus is meaning when he says, I am the way, is to follow him and to trust him in our everyday life. When the world's way and the heart's way says to judge and to hate and to seek revenge, we follow Jesus' way in forgiveness and sacrifice and love. Because that way leads to life, not more death. I believe that when Jesus says, I am the truth, he means I'm more than some rabbi that's come on the scene like you've seen a million times before. 
I am what is true and ultimate reality. And no one comes to the Father in His rest and renewal and new creation but through me. And I know I've told this story before, but I was asked uh, several, this may have been a couple years ago, to speak at a Unitarian congregation. And they said, we like what you were saying about some of these things, but you know, one of your sermons we listened to, you said like, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. What you need to say is Jesus is a way and a truth and a life. I said, yeah, I said, you know, like, I, I don't really believe that. But truth be told, like, I can't promise you that even if I wanted to, that it wouldn't just come out. Because, like, I don't really think as much as I ought to, spoiler alert, when I'm in the act of preaching. Like, things just come out. So I think I would say the instead of ah. But what that really reflects is a modern Western problem with one of the most controversial statements that Jesus just made in John 14 and 6. What he says is, I am the truth. And what we have in the modern Western world, I want you to imagine a giant mountain. And at the top is that ultimate reality, that life with the Father. Show us the Father. Get us to the end. Show us what life looks like. Where do we go from here? Get us there. Get us there. Get us there. Just put life eternal at the top of the mountain. In our modern Western understanding, a common illustration is there's one goal, but there's many paths up the mountain. That sounds really good and beautiful, right? That the Muslim and the Jewish person and the Wiccan or the Buddhist or the person, you know, that's Hindu, like fill in the blank. It's all the same. But the problem is, man, any education, uh, any, any person that's educated about world religions knows that they are not the same. They are markedly different. We have some commonality with our, our cousins in Islam and Judaism, but they are markedly different. And the people that say that Jesus was a great teacher, dude, the problem with Jesus and his teaching is all he's talking about is the kingdom of God. If you cut out all that stuff and cut out the things he does, you, you get like one page of some moral teaching. But even the problem with that moral teaching is it's all against the backdrop and the understanding that Jesus is your king. There's a famous rabbi that was looking at the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus, when he says, you've heard it said in the Hebrew Bible, but I say to you, this rabbi said that my problem with Jesus is that only God can say something like that. And to which Christians go, yes, that's the point. These religions are markedly different. They are markedly different. But can people that are Islamic and, Jew- and Jewish love well? Yes, shake your head. Are they good and beautiful and decent people? Yes. Are they capable of loving and serving and doing good? Yes. Does God love them with a tender and relentless and patient and passionate love? Shake your head. Yes. For there is one disposition God has for saint and sinner and Jew, Gentile, or otherwise, and it is that of passionate, pursuing love. And what we have to hold in tension is two clear teachings of the New Testament. Stay with me. This is some theology stuff. There's two clear teachings in the New Testament. The first is that there is only one king and one name leading the way to life, and his name is Jesus. Peter says it explicitly in the Gospel of Acts. Uh, Act, the Gospel of Acts, sorry. The, this is what I say when stuff just comes out. 
In the book of Acts, he says, God has given one name under heaven by which men can be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. That's where you see throughout the New Testament, Jesus himself says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's this clear teaching that there's only one king and one name. His name is Jesus, the way to life. But then there's this other thing we've got to hold that the New Testament sneaks in, not just one place, two place, three place, like several of the books, if not all of the books, speaks to, hear me, this cosmic, huge, and universal implication of what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished for this world. Sometimes they say words like, all people, and they mean all. Sometimes he says things like, God shows no favoritism, but accepts from all people those who love and serve. And you sit there and you go, whoa, this sounds pretty crazy. So let's go back to our mountain and let me say this as clearly as I want to, I hope to say. Eternal life with God the Father is at the top. And sure, the world says there's a good many paths, but let me tell you that when we all reach the top of the mountain, all the people who are there at the top of the mountain get there because Jesus made the way. And I believe when Jesus returns and we are with him and the new heavens and the new earth and we are experiencing life like it was always meant to be, we're going to look around and say, oh my goodness, can you believe he let these people in? And they're going to look around and they're going to bow a knee and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and they'll see that Jesus Christ is Lord and they're going to understand that they got there because of Jesus. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. What does that mean for this? I don't know. But I know that Jesus is the only way to get there. So what this means for us is, let us tell our friends and our family who are headed toward death apart from him to understand the life that is theirs if they would turn to Jesus now and not hope So what does Jesus mean when he says that he is the life? The reality is that there's a default setting in our heart. And there's a default setting out of the package in our world that Jesus says we're headed to destruction. Left on our own, we're going to head toward death and violence and racism and all these things. And so the way of Jesus being life is to turn to him, and it's this gift of God, and everybody that will be at the top of the mountain has in some way received that life that Jesus gives. But there are so many people that will not choose to love God, and they will not choose to love others. And God, with a grieving heart, will give them what they want. And I believe it's hidden right there in our most famous passage of Scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not what? Perish. But have what? Everlasting life. What we see, I believe in the whole of scripture, is that for those that choose to reject God and make hell on earth for these people, will perish. I believe that the gift of God is eternal life. I believe that God gives to those who have chosen him and chosen life a life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But we do know people 
who will reject his love and reject his life and will make hell in this life and will experience the death and separation from him. I believe that it will grieve God whose single disposition to saints and sinners is love, relentless, patient, sacrificial love that longs for us to trust Him, to turn to Him, and find in Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. But we know people who will reject Him. We see at the end of this passage in verses 9 to 10 when He's responding again to Philip saying, just show us the Father and we'll be good. What he's basically saying is, don't you get it, man? The Father has been in me, and I've been in the Father. And the words the Father wants me to say, I say. And the works the Father wants me to do, I'm doing. And the takeaway I want you to hear and write down is that Jesus is the representative of God and the revelation of God. Your friends and family want to know what God looks like. And you know what you need to tell them? God looks like Jesus. But the Old Testament, this, yes, the entry point into the Old Testament is to look to Jesus who said, you heard it say, but I say to you. We cannot use, as we've talked about in this book, these leaders of reading, we cannot use Moses and Elijah to silence Jesus. Because when we see Jesus with Moses and Elijah, like we read in our Lent reading with the Transfiguration, when there was only Jesus left, the Father's voice says, this is my son, listen to him. Because Jesus says in John chapter 5, Moses and Elijah, they all point to me. You search the scriptures to find life. He says, life is in me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible is the inspired, authoritative, infallible witness to the word of God who is Jesus. God looks like Jesus. Not just in the New Testament. He's always looked like Jesus. The Bible is a record of us trying to figure it out. And the light has dawned in Jesus. And what we saw in the shadows and in the dusk has come to full fruition at the light of the day. And it looks like Jesus Christ. And more specifically, his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection into new life. And he says, come everybody, let's go. And so I want to close with this. Back at the table with our disciples, looking ahead, saying, what are we going to do now? What do we make of Jesus now? What do we make of our life now? And would you just break it down and show us? He says, no, you do know the Father because you know me. But the problem is the disciples and our friends and family struggling to understand what God looks like cannot get their head around a God who touches lepers and loves the unlovable. They can't get their head around a God who welcomes sinners that we want to reject and cast out. They cannot get their head around a God who challenges the rich and the proud and says there's more life to be had than what you've made it. We can't get our head around a God who delivers the oppressed from evil when we are complicit in all the ways in which we let evil continue to run amok. We cannot get our head around a God who feeds the hungry and who takes the form of a servant when we want to elevate everybody and worship the celebrity. Jesus showed them what God looks like when he got down and washed their feet. And they never could have imagined, even though Jesus told them, 
that we could crucify God and that he could forgive us. They never imagined that God could die and be raised again to new life and say, come on, because I'm the way, the truth, and the life too. And we can't fully understand and get our head around it, but I want to close by asking you, what are you staring down this week? You don't have to look 50 years into the future. What is it this week, this month, that has got you and your heart shaking? Perhaps it's the big thing, like this fear of death and all these things we're talking about. Or perhaps it's just the fact that I feel like I'm kind of stuck and in a mess and I don't know the way forward. How will you walk in the way of Jesus this week, even when it's hard? Will you trust him? I want you to seriously think right now, what is that person or that situation and how does Jesus, to which all the scripture points, wants to show me the way this week? Maybe for you, it's all the voices and the lies of telling you who you are. What truth does God want you to hear this week? And where are all the other places you've been running off to to find life? That Jesus, like the good and gentle shepherd he is, wants to turn you back and say, no, 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 friend, life is here. Life is here with me. We're going to come to the table and we're going to come and sing Jesus to Jesus who invites us to come to him, all who are weary and burdened and brokenhearted. Would you come to believe and trust the master who's the way, the truth, and the life? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would meet with us. That you would reveal to us ways in which we need to trust you this week. Lord, for some of us, we might need to pray to repent and to turn back to you and to follow you. To get back on track with your way, to hear your truth, and to live in your life now and in expectation of the life to come. So Lord, we just ask that you would bless us and keep us and that we would be a people who follow along with you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You're invited to stand together and receive the bread and the wine that represents the sacrificial love of God given to us by Jesus on the cross. So if you are following Jesus, we ask for you to come. As we stand together to receive and sing. Whatever wilderness the Spirit has brought you to, walk in boldness as a beloved child of God. Walk in peace under the shelter of the Most High. And walk in faith knowing Christ walks with you. Amen. Go in his peace.